From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxai, and this is ReSound. The waterfront in Odessa. We sit on a bench. I don't think Romeo and Juliet ever got to sit on a bench. I wonder if things might have turned out differently for them, if Shakespeare hadn't have been poking his beak in the whole time. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and beautiful stories we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, then bring you the best of what we hear each week. I walk over to Die Fremde and whisper in her ear. To be honest, mate, in an ideal world, they'd turn around and they'd do a full 360 and their front would also be the back of a head. Every once in a while on ReSound, we shove everything else aside so that we can introduce you to someone whose work is absolutely extraordinary. Today, we are delighted to bring you stories and soundscapes created by the Berlin-based British producer Phil Smith. His work is put together with at least as many layers as a symphony. It is so meticulously crafted, you're likely to get even more out of it if you go back and listen a second or even a third time. It is musical, poetic, funny, and profound all at once. This is my idea of a perfect time. On holiday, with a pair of lovers and a carry-on bag full of microphones. The music you're hearing right now, and actually the majority of the music you'll hear this hour, was written and performed by today's featured producer, Phil Smith, a 31-year-old piano player, singer, and songwriter. Though he's only been producing stories for about four years, he's been making music and recording sounds for a lot longer. This first story starts with a very early recording of Phil. Now imagine a young, eight-year-old Phil in a green school blazer singing and playing his heart out on stage with his older brother. So I'm going to play you something, yeah? Mm-hmm. Just want your honest reaction to it. Yeah. Oh, my God. You... The Holden Hall, Autumn Term, 1994. I was eight, Andy ten. Andy's playing trombone, I'm playing cornet, which is a trumpet for tiny people. Where did you get this from? Unlike my brother, I've listened to this recording several times in the 20 years since. I, um, I held on to it. I asked mum to go up into the loft and find it. What's it doing in the loft? That's a good point, actually. What is it doing in the loft? <laughs> are, all, are all my things in the loft now? My question is more like, why isn't it burnt? Andrew, Philip, that's what the teachers called us. Andy and Phil. Sounds better. Andy and Phil, the Smith brothers. Their music embodied the spirit of an age, a moment in time. Cheshire, the mid-90s. This was the sound of Cheadle Hume School in its glory years, when ragtime piano licks sauntered lazily down the lunch break corridors and choruses of old jazz ballads volleyed against the playground wall. There they were in little green blazers at the heart of it all, a duo and their song. Ain't Misbehaving was written in 1929 by Fat Swallow and lyricist Andy Razaf for part of a show called Hot Chocolates, which ran in Harlem. Yeah, OK, maybe. It very but it was the Smith brothers began, who made... A young trumpeter made this song his own, mm-hmm. and his name was Louis Armstrong. Yeah. Who is this, anyway? I'm Alan Shipton, BBC Radio 3 presenter, jazz historian and author on all manner of jazz topics. Oh. Not only did he play the show every night in Harlem at Connie's Inn, where he sang Ain't Misbehaving, but the show transferred downtown to Daly's... We had triumphed that year at the music competition in a blistering run of summer performances. The act soon transferred across campus to the middle school assembly hall. We took it to Butlin's, Patheli, on tour with the Withenshaw Wind Band. We were playing so many gigs and our homework suffered. Many historians of jazz think that it's this song in particular that transformed Louis from being a spectacular jazz trumpeter into being a popular entertainer. There was something so compelling about the way he sang these words. Are you seriously proposing giving this to Josie Long? 
A few years later, more double acts down the line, I remember a classmate telling me that our music teacher said that I wasn't to think I was better than Andy. But I did. I played the melody. I was the one who sang. I was Louis. It was the wrong side of Louis's talents that the trumpeter in particular chose to follow because well, Louis had a very particular vocal delivery. Yeah. When you try and emulate that slightly before your voice is broken, it does sound strange. But they clearly loved it. Must have been a really terrible concert. <laughs> very respectful isn't it it's about a, <laughs> a gentleman with options um forgoing those options for the love of a good woman I'll back on you. i'm interested to know what you think about the lyrics um i think the lyrics of amos paving are really like a man trying to convince himself like Jack Horner, in a i am still standing on the stage of the holden hall i am waiting for applause I cannot sing so well as the little green blazer tugs tightly around my chest. Andy is nowhere to be seen. No one claps. The trombonist has got the right idea here because he's playing some fantastic counterpoint harmony which makes it very easy for the trumpeter to sound very good. And I think it's great tribute to your older brother that he's supporting you with some of the more difficult bits that you learn when you get to the grand old age of ten. I want to want to leave the stage, but I can't quite do it. From the sidelines, behind the curtain, a prompt whispered in the voice of my brother, something he said a few years ago. Do you remember what he said to me? Like the end of my early life crisis. Yeah. <laughs> I think the point is, and I wish someone had told me, which is probably why I told you, you grow up and you think that, well, obviously I'm going to be one of the ones that makes it. Whatever you do, basically, you're going to be amazing at it. And I think I probably said to you that it's actually a real relief realising you're not going to be one of those people and you're just going to live out your life in normalcy. And that's fine. It really takes the pressure off. And I think it's something that almost, I'd imagine most 20 somethings struggle with quite a lot. I know I did. Well, interesting, yeah. Listening to that's really hammered at home. <laughs> that was Satchmo Encore, the story of two brothers and their relationship to music and each other, by today's featured artist, Phil Smith. In retrospect, singing Ain't Misbehavin' might have been an odd choice at best. Also, if you're wondering, Phil still plays the cornet, but not often because, as he says, he's lost his lip. I am standing on the platform of the tram and I'm entirely uncertain as to my place in this world, in this town, in my family. I am quite unable to defend the fact that I am standing on this platform, holding onto this strap, letting myself be carried along by this tram. Long after Phil's eight-year-old version of Satchmo got stashed in his mother's attic, he moved to Berlin. Because, he told us, here I feel free. No one is pinning you down to say, I'm a poet, I'm a musician, I'm a radio producer, whatever. You're just an artist, and you do what you want. In Berlin at 27, Phil found himself in a playground of new sounds and words. It's here that he produced a series of stories we've put together in a trilogy of relationship tales. One about longing, one about the first blush of romance, and one about love's demise. We begin with a story that was inspired by Franz Kafka's short essay, The Passenger, which is about, among other things, the romances we have in our heads with perfect strangers. Sie sagen los, ja? Los? Los. You say go. Oh, like as in go? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Los. Los. Go. Since moving to Germany last summer, 
I dream of the beautiful girl on the train. Here we both are in August, together. My first journey on the U-Bahn recorded for the scrapbook. Die Fremde. Write that down. Die Fremde. Die Fremde. Write it down. Die Fremde. If you say Die Fremde, it's a woman, unknown woman. Die Fremde. Fremde. I stare at her, but she looks away. I've been here for eight months now, on this train, with these thoughts. It's not mucky stuff. I haven't got the vocab. At this point, my conversation goes as far as uh, umlauts. Um, pretty good ones. Um, the really romantic um, ones. The seductive uh, umlauts. Um, uh, oh, um, sorry. Um. Okay, die Leute sprechen. The people are talking. Ich höre zu. And I am listening. Ich höre zu. In the carriage, conversation continues, but I don't understand. Subtleties that might jump up back home stay seated here. Everything becomes music. Everything has lost its label. Everyone. I walk over to Die Fremde and whisper in her ear. I don't know any adjectives whatsoever. What oh, gone wonder? Oh, well, then since like year eight. At home for Christmas. You have a one for one. At home in a language, in the company of adjectives and an old friend, in the pub, I confess to a bosom pal Charlie that I'm obsessed with Die Fremde. I have to see her face. No, but that's self-destructive. Pure joy in the world is seeing the back of a girl's head and thinking, look at that lustrous hair. It's literally as if, imagine you get honey and just rub dirt into it and then just like massage it through her hair and it gives her that glossy sheen. The I'm cut sure of... No, 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 you are, if you think about it carefully. And the cut of her neck, strong enough to hold her head without snapping off. It's not like a loaf of bread. It's in the middle. She's got lovely shoulders. You know, she can carry a backpack. But... She couldn't carry a field telephone. I don't want to see them from the front. Go. The new year, back to Berlin. Same train, same girl, same thoughts. Still no mucky stuff, but my German is getting better. Maybe I could write her a poem with all these verbs I've got. Let's see now. Ich bin gegangen. I have gone. Ich habe meine Freunde verloren. I've lost my friends. Hmm, not exactly poetry. Although it did work for Charles Lamb. The old familiar faces. Von Charles Lamb. I read this poem once on a toilet wall. Ich habe gelacht. I've been laughing. Ich habe gezecht. I've been carousing. Carousing? It's a very old word. Ich habe Drinking late, sitting late, with my bosom cronies. All, alle, alle sind sie weg. all are gone. Die alten, bekannten Gesichter. The old, familiar faces. Oh, the dreamy egotism of objectifying strangers. No responsibility to reality. Words show only half their meanings. Personalities reduce. Ich liebe. I love. And the imagined girl gets prettier still. I love the loved ones. Einmal hatte ich eine geliebte. Fairest among women. Die schönste unter den Frauen. Closed are her doors on me. Schlossen sind ihre Türen für mich. I must not see her. Die Fremde. The stranger, yes. Shouldn't I translate this, die Fremde? Yeah. But also the German word for the foreign. To me it means the alien. Unknown, the exotic. Something mysterious. The not quite definable opposite, the opposite of the Heimat. Home. Home. But I don't believe you don't want to see her face. To be honest, mate, in an ideal world, they'd turn around and they'd do a full 360 and their front would also be the back of a head. <laughs> because that's the essence of what they're doing for you there. Die Fremde stands up and walks over and I look deep into her faceless head. Rotating in, she whispers in flawless English, luckily. I am not the next great stanza in some poem all about you. Now, los. What? Los? Los. Oh, like as in go? Yeah. Los. Los. Go. 
Ende. All are gone. Die Fremde by Phil Smith. As we move on in our trilogy of love, we'll make our way to Ukraine for a wedding. But first, because Phil's creative style is not always linear, we start with his interpretation of possibly the best-known love scene in all of literature. There's that scene in Romeo and Juliet where he knocks on the window and says something to the effect of, hello, let's get married. There's a bit more to it than that. But anyway, they'd only met about 20 minutes ago. And she says... Although I joy in thee, I have no joy of this contract tonight. It is too rash, too unadvised, too sudden. And you completely understand her caution. But then she does add, but text me tomorrow, yeah? And you know he's going to spend all night working out the most subtly filthy combination of emoticons that the 16th century could offer him. And then, of course, about four days later, they're all dead. But this balcony scene, this is the best scene. Because everything's perfectly balanced in the present, in the moonlit night, they know where they've come from. They know where they want to go together. It's all poised. They've just got to wait until morning. I'm recording the sound of your heels. Your shoes on your wedding day. Yeah. When I booked a flight for far too reasonable a price, given the state of the planet, and yet I keep doing it, to Ukraine in April, the idea was to go and visit my friend Sasha. But by the time it got to June, it turns out I was now going to his wedding. What's the images on your dress? Someone riding a horse? A donkey. A donkey. It also turns out that this is my idea of a perfect time. On holiday, with a pair of lovers and a carry-on bag full of microphones. The wedding was a dream. A horseshoe of guests in a courtyard. Everyone smiling, the sun, music, the exchange of what sounded like beautiful vowels, which I didn't understand they were in Ukrainian. But it was a relief finally to leave the party and board the overnight train to Odessa, just the three of us. The final thing is that we have this interview now in the train and uh, I propose Tony to be my wife in a train. Oh my god. I answered, I don't know how to translate it in English. Taladna. It's like. Are you kidding me? Uh, are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to answer. <laughs> Did you not answer then? Mm, no, I didn't know the answer and I asked for some time to think and uh, to understand my feelings and to make the right decision. I think it was a week. Yeah, maybe a week. I don't know exactly. Or even more. No, not more than a week. During this relation, everything was speeding up in terms of like we started to date, and then like everything becomes speeding up. Yeah, for me it's okay. It's not quick, but I think for our parents, for people around us, it's really quick decision. Mm. I yeah. think so. And they ask all the time about it. Is it not so quick? Maybe you should slow down and not make any other quick decision. <laughs> we said, okay. Yeah. I don't really care about the days and the years. Those are just the loops of the moon around the earth and the earth around the sun, which really do not matter anything, just the astronomic happenings. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'd marry someone who said that. <laughs> <laughs> the night train to Odessa is a magic thing. Here a bunk, there a bunk, everywhere a folding table. I look around at the people, some of them just like me, on their own, although not many of them were operating a boom microphone. All around, couples of different ages, at different stages of their shared journeys together, I guess, tucking each other in, a kiss goodnight, one of them has gone to fetch tea from the ancient-looking metal boiler at the end of the carriage, and eventually all joining in with the chorus of snores. As somewhere in the dark, Juliet is texting, Come, 
gentle knight, come loving black-browed knight, give me my Romeo. And when I shall die, take him and cut him out in little stars, and he will make the face of heaven so fine that all the world will be in love with night and pay no worship to the garish sun. The honeymoon proper begins by the Opera House, where the half-marathon started under a red inflatable arch. The lovers both ran solid PBs and then retired to the shade for lunch. Oh, love in a time of sponsored umbrellas, love in a time of climate change, love in a time of Eisenstein films uploaded to YouTube and that famous scene of the baby's pram rolling down the steps to the waterfront in Odessa. Sasha carries Tonya down the steps to the waterfront because her legs have seized up. We sit on a bench. Tonya says she'd like to be a snail in her next life, but she's in no hurry to get there. We watch the harbour's slow progress. Groups of schoolchildren shuffle by. Everything should be happy, beautiful and with sense, yeah. And, that's, and you think a snail's life would provide that? <laughs> yeah. I don't think Romeo and Juliet ever got to sit on a bench. I wonder if things might have turned out differently for them if Shakespeare hadn't have been poking his beak in the whole time. I leave the lovers, looking out to sea. I think I might try and start a business where I um, offer newly married couples the opportunity mm -hmm. to have their honeymoon turned into a, a po podcast. Honeymoon podcast? Oh, yeah. great. Or a documentary. It's blue ocean in a business. <laughs> because everybody uh, want to have a film, wedding film or honeymoon film, but it will be wedding or honeymoon podcast. Exactly. So the podcast idea, there's more... More personal. Yeah, it's more personal, exactly. Yeah. And it can be more romantic. Because uh, I can just add yeah, anything. Like, what do you want? I can give you, like... An accordion player. I can give you like the sound of waves. You know what else do you want? If you want a maybe a choir of unicorns. <laughs> yeah, get rid of all this traffic for you. Or maybe you want the traffic. I don't know. I think reality is good. It could be with traffic, with waves. Unicorns. <laughs> In our reality, there are unicorns. Right? <laughs> there is a system, secret system of unicorns, in a new emerged family. So, basically, there is a finite number of unicorns in our two bodies, and we don't know how many. And they are free to go either to me or to Tanya. And make everybody happy, we can share it. Do you want a unicorn? I'd take, I'd take one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk with them. <laughs> yeah. We want, we would like, we would wish we recognize at every moment whether we are happy or not, which is actually the essential question. To this question lead all other questions about your life, your work, your everything. Whether you are happy or not, and to be really brave to answer that. Maybe we will change country, maybe we will change our professions, maybe we will change the way of living, I don't know. Our train is going for for changes, changes, I think, yes. Like we were talking about that when you went for a beer on, the, on this seaport and there was annoying advertising of these uh, sea cruises. 
Yeah, like harbour cruises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were saying. Морская прогулочка отправляется. Морская прогулочка отправляется, да. Yeah, so. Hurry, hurry, something. Not hurry, hurry, but like it's gonna start. In a few minutes, your ship will go. And it was, it was, it was ironic because they have these fast trips every hour. <laughs> Морская прогулочка отправляется. Морская прогулочка отправляется, да. Морская прогулочка отправляется. Морская прогулочка отправляется, да. That was Towards by our featured producer today on Resound, Phil Smith. Now let's jump right into Four Resolutions of a Diminished Chord, the final of three pieces by Phil about love. This one exploring multiple romances as they fizzle out or die. She's really, she's really a nice person, very nice person. You can take her anywhere. She's the sort of person, I don't know whether it's in the wardrobe that she had, but um, she used to look fine in anything that she put on. It's the way she moves, I suppose, or the way her character, or... I'm proud to have her on my arm. I'm proud to take her anywhere. We did plan to get married. I didn't want to marry again, I, and she didn't either. She didn't want to marry. And I met my friend to walk along and. South Bank in London and we just had one of those conversations that only really happen when you're moving or you're sort of sitting side by side in a car as opposed to purposefully talking over a table and and I was resolved about a relationship ending and determined to stop pretending that there was a narrative there when there really wasn't and she was just beginning a relationship which had a similar romantic prologue I suppose um, but we walked along there I was just ending this thing and her just beginning and I think we both knew that the next time we walked the south bank and looked at the cranes and tried to find a good pub and not being able to again. It might probably be the other way round and I would just be starting something and she would just be finishing something. And I liked that, I suppose. And I also wondered, I wonder if it will ever be the two of us together in a relationship and how do we then do this walk where we were helping each other out with heartbreak and people laughing at our hearts and and I think one day we will but I'm not quite sure when we're able to be bold enough to stop those walks happening I suppose and sign up to the same story. Now don't fret, I'm not going to explain that, but it's worth your knowing that the diminished seventh chord is the most ambiguous of all tonal formations, and for that reason, it became the favorite, even basic, ambiguous chord of all the romantic composers. Maybe I should explain it a bit, after all.
darkness was exactly as it is now. Twilight, light rain, lights, street lights, cars going past. We were walking back from our friend's house on Christmas day to our house. And uh, I was pushing Ivy in the buggy. And Ellie was ahead of me, uh, about 10 meters, running slowly. And I was kind of running after her through the rain, up a hill, pushing the buggy, just watching her silhouette, enjoying the feeling of the weather and the cars going past, illuminating each step, each progression forward. And I could have ran faster, caught her. I could have tried to push the buggy harder, but the buggy was holding me back and I was holding myself back because I was enjoying that distance, that, that space, and just watching her running away. Don't know where the story ended there. Yeah, I don't know. And in the end, everyone wants the same thing. <laughs> like, that's quite... If you've felt, like, very much in love one day, like, you, you know that, how much that can be fulfilling and amazing and, and warm and make you feel confident and everything. And yet, we're very bad at just accepting that. There is something like that seems bigger than this love at some point. And yet, we truly know that it's not. But sometimes we want to feel free. Sometimes we're not ready to have children. Sometimes we're not ready to do a lot of things that seem really important to us and they are and they, and life is made of those choices at some point where you just like put two things in the balance and just be like I need to go I need to stay or and sometimes you need to stay and the person's not ready to stay and sometimes you need to go and the person's ready to stay every diminished seventh chord is capable of at least four different resolutions, which gives any such chord a minimum four-way ambiguity. Now take this one we were just looking at, for instance, it can resolve here. And it can resolve here. And it can resolve here. And it can resolve here. At least those four. There are many more resolutions I won't go into. Four resolutions of a diminished chord. The final act in our trilogy of relationship stories we've curated from producer Phil Smith. Our next story starts with Kurt Vonnegut, ends with a giggling librarian, and in between touches on loneliness, insecurity, the deathly serious, and the ridiculously absurd. I don't think I'm the only one who's found the past few months quite confusing. Maybe the simplest way to get at what I'm trying to say is to read from an email I sent to my friend Jamie on the 14th of January. In the interest of honesty, I won't edit it. I'll pop some piano and a typewriter underneath to take a bit of the edge off. And where there's things written in brackets, I'll do a bit of echo for you. But otherwise, it's as is. Well, this Trump stuff is all pretty devastating. There was already so much to be working on. Climate change, inequality, considering our own deaths, being kind and overcoming selfishness, smiley face. I'm trying to channel these feelings into writing a slightly unhinged radio play, actually, since you ask what I'm up to. Maybe I'll send you a copy of the script when it's almost there. I'd welcome feedback and ideas because it's the kind of philosophical stuff which, as you know, I'm not the best at. That said, that's kind of the point, but maybe it'd be horrific to listen to, i.e. the point is meeting someone not quite clever enough and not quite brave enough or honest enough, struggling with existence, exclamation mark. It's looking at the spaghetti of thought and feeling all running around in there, 
including Protestant guilt, feeling that my voice should be heard, leanings towards hedonism, alcoholic tendencies, joy and creativity, love of radio, general disappointment, confusion about the idea of parenthood, overinflated sense of the importance of my own self-professed self-development, sadness at there not really being a simple answer to it all, tendency to distrust technology that is serving only to make us weird half-digital, half-real humans, sadness that I am, and our age is, summed up by rampant capitalism, but maybe choose not to be, choose to be summed up by your friendships and the truth of the relationships and the fun you have, fear of being judged by generations to come, not actually caring enough to change my lifestyle, self-acceptance versus self-improvement, knowing which one, when, my relationship with compromise and pragmatism, the danger of bubbles and loops of thought, jealousy, fear of my sexual jealousy, suspicion of pleasure as the aim of life, is it struggle, desire for honesty, what does that mean, love of romance, love of getting drunk, acknowledgement of my own ability to charm and the dangers of charm killing truth, truth, not letting go, paralysis due to head in own arse, professed hyper-awareness as obfuscation, of what? Hmm, listening back I realise I left quite a lot of stuff out. Anyway, there isn't really a short answer to that kind of email, so Jamie rang me back. We didn't manage to speak for long, dodgy connection. But the next time I saw him, Jamie gave me a book, Timequake, by Kurt Vonnegut. That the impulse to laugh at healthy people who nonetheless fall down is by no means universal was brought to my attention unpleasantly at a performance of Swan Lake by the Royal Ballet in London, England, in the summer of 1996. A ballerina, dancing on her toes, went diddly 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 into the wings as she was supposed to do. But then there was a sound backstage as though she'd put her foot in a bucket and then gone down an iron stairway with her foot still in the bucket. <laughs> I instantly laughed like hell. I was the only person to do so. <laughs> what is this? This is super it's funny. It's really funny. The whole thing is brilliant. <laughs> oh, what a great moment. <laughs> Timequake by Kurt Vonnegut, a kind of memoir, and some of my favourite bits are the descriptions of sharing stories of people falling over. Falling down is hilarious. The other day I tripped <laughs> and I fell like on all fours on the stairs. <laughs> when I read them, I instantly wanted my friend Zora to read them too. She loves this kind of stuff. In fact, most of Zora's stories are about her own clumsiness. And I elbowed it and just flipped my salad into the whole pot of soup. Got the soup all over my hands. Zora works in a library, which means any instance involving falling over or destroying things is generally funnier because you're supposed to do it quietly. But it wasn't until I got to work that I noticed there was an intense squeak in one shoe. And first I was marching quite confidently because I hadn't heard the squeak. So I'd walked in, squeak, 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 squeak. Squeak, 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 squeak. When you try not to squeak, you squeak even more. Well, you got to walk that lonesome ladder. You got to walk all by yourself. There ain't nobody else can walk it for you. In Timequake, Kurt Vonnegut thanks his uncle Alex for getting him into reading. I am eternally grateful to him for my knack of finding in great books, some of them very funny books, reason enough to feel honoured to be alive, no matter what else may be going on. Do you, as a librarian, agree with that? <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because reading it feels like something I would say. Because <laughs> I think about my dad. When we were kids, he would buy us the weirdest books. Like, one of the first real books I got was a kid's encyclopedia, and we'd take it with us to the beach, and my dad would just explain all of this stuff. Well, all librarians really can hold that as their job description finding the right book for the person who's looking for it. Giving people this customer service part of like helping them find a way to get the information they're looking for and quote unquote truth that they're trying to find. I think that's super cool. All they can do is part the way. People totally forget that the truth doesn't just like, you don't Google it and it's right there. Like you have to go and really find it. 
Maybe it's enough to sit in the kitchen and listen to gospel. Maybe it's not possible to be awake all of the time. Maybe we couldn't care less when we're laughing with friends or climbing trees in love. Maybe it's enough to be reading a really good book and to think, yes, that's it. Maybe it's laughing. Maybe at our desks or on the beach, in sickness or in health, we're just another point in history. No better, no worse. Maybe it's always been this confusing, and we've always fallen over a great deal, despite all the advancements in shoe technology. Maybe it's what the librarian knows, that the best approach is to catalogue our efforts alphabetically. The other day, and this was really funny because I walked into a wall right after I said it. I don't know, I'm walking into walls at work a lot, but it's, uh, I say this somehow so often, die Hoffnung stirbt zuletzt. Hope is the last to die. And I say it all the time, like to people, yeah, die Hoffnung stirbt zuletzt. It's like, <laughs> and I realize that it's darker than, than it seems, but it's always like that pick me up, like, who knows, hey. Have you learned this? the ability to laugh at ridiculous everyday situations or has that always kind of come naturally and that's what helped in your life? Mm. I think um, my dad laid a really great foundation and <laughs> my grandma also totally because my mom was so strict with us my dad always really tried to make us remember a sense of humility and just like laughing at yourself. I think a part of being okay with yourself is being able to laugh at yourself and there's some sort of humor I think in in anything. And I think especially because of what happened to my dad, it just forced me to be even more intensely like that. Like, okay, if I can do that, then it's fine. I actually haven't really talked to you about it much mm. as a friend, but like, what happened to your dad? Yeah. Well, uh, it was two weeks before my 16th birthday and my grandma just died a few weeks prior. And, uh, my dad and I, we'd, the last time we'd seen each other, I was in tears. We like had a huge fight. It was our first really big fight. And I'd seen photos on his, on his camera where he's like snorting coke off of this stripper at a party. And I was, I was like, Dad, you can't do this anymore. Like, you're in your 60s. You have kids. Like, we want to chill out. And he was my dad was insane then the week after I came back to Berlin and we, we talked every day and then one day we didn't talk and uh, it turned out someone killed my dad and uh, yeah still very unclear how it happened but uh, someone killed him in front of our in front of our house like they lured him out and where was this this was in, this was in Jamaica and someone for what reason it could be that my dad was involved in something. There are a few court cases going on. I think this is the, the most stressful thing, that it's just not completely over. Time flies like an arrow. Fruit flies like bananas. <laughs> Oh, did you hear about the hungry clock? It went back four seconds. <laughs> How do you make a tissue dance? You put a little boogie in it. <laughs> I try and get everyone I know to have heard it once because <laughs> they're so good. How can you not share that? Like, <laughs> If I had to make a banner today with a pithy one-liner on it, to wave at life, my answer. I'd choose this quote from Timequake. Kurt Vonnegut says it's one of his top three quotes. He attributes it to his son. It goes, We are here to help each other get through this thing, whatever it is. We are here to help each other get through this thing, whatever it is. <laughs> this idea that we'd be here to make other people's lives less good. <laughs> laughing. I think this is a big part of solidarity. And I tried this in my everyday life. I talk to everybody. I love it. <laughs> Anytime I get a chance to talk to a stranger, it's great. And if we can laugh, it's even better because it just, for a moment, cool. It sucks in general, so let's just try and make it suck a little bit. <laughs> Bless.
this is also where I'm a terrible librarian, is I'm way too chilled, like, I have a hard time shushing people. I've been trying this thing where I, um, have a piece of paper, and I just write shh on it, and just, like, show it. I thought maybe that could be a funny way to, to shush. How would you feel if someone shushed you like that? Would you get it? You know what I mean? Like, it's totally post-humor. <laughs> Because maybe not in the exact moment. Hmm, thought, haha. <laughs> that was quite entertaining. Or is it better to just go shh? Rally by yourself. We are here to help each other get through this thing, whatever it is, by our featured producer, Phil Smith. Now we move on to our last story from Phil. And, by way of background, the piece is based on W.H. Auden's Paysage Moralisé, a poem about the idea of home and who gets to live where. The poem itself is a sestina, a composition of six six-lined verses, where each line ends in one of six words. Phil told us that the poem, originally written in 1939, brought to mind the disturbing recent images we've seen of people on rafts and sinking ships trying to get to a safe place and a new home. That inspired him to create this piece called A Very Different Time. So there was no hardship at all. And we, of course, always thought, oh, this is how it will go on forever. We didn't see them. They were out of our sight. We didn't realize that. We didn't care. And it was a bit difficult to say goodbye to this illusion. But you know, you live in a very different time. Valleys. Mountains, water, islands, cities, sorrow, sorrow. Cities, you know, still have long time, long time, long time, long time to go. No? Mountains, islands, water. They built by rivers, and at night, the water. Running past windows comforted their sorrow. Each in his little bed conceived of islands, where every day was dancing in the valleys. And all the green trees blossomed on the mountains, where love was innocent, being far from cities. We always went back. Um... Each in his little bed conceived of islands. We always went back for the holidays to the house in the countryside. Where every day was dancing in the valleys. It never rained on my birthday. And never all the green the trees blossomed on the mountains. Always sunshine on my birthday. Where love was innocent, being far from cities. There's houses in the countryside. There's little villains, not even a shop. Each in his little bed conceived of islands. islands. I mean, there's a river in front of the door. Where every day was dancing in the valleys. And all the green trees blossomed on the mountains. Paradise, sun, the ocean. Where love was innocent. Like really warm. Being far from cities. You can't get rid of it and see like your country and your language. Especially if you're very happy somewhere else. You would never have a model framework. You would never have a model framework. But at the same time, it's something that... It says though maybe you moved to Berlin and then couldn't go back to England. And I came back. But Dawn came back. and they were still in cities. It's hard to be like in country 
which is not your homeland and you can't speak the language and you'll be alone when you don't have a lot of friends. I actually know a lot of people, but that's not really I have friends. So I know people, but I don't have really friends here. That's it. Yeah. You have to wait, wait, wait. Some people are still waiting there. There's a line for getting numbers. This number getting took sometimes days, sometimes weeks. Uh, so people were camping outside to be the first in the queue just to get the number. With this number, you had to wait until this number to be called. And this is a totally random process. At the beginning, I mean, they've got these boards where numbers blink up. Or someone was just shouting it through a megaphone. The world is changing completely. Hearing of harvests rotting in the valleys. Seeing at end of street the barren mountains. You don't feel anything of it. Round corners coming suddenly on water. They threw the last things they had out of the boat. Knowing them shipwrecked who were launched for islands. The number could be called any day. We honour founders of these starving cities. Whose honour is the image of our sorrow. People don't leave just for fun. Which cannot um, see its likeness in their sorrow. People don't cross uh, the Mediterranean if they don't have a reason for that it. brought them desperate to the brink of valleys. Being with me my book, some clothes. Dreaming of evening walks through learned cities. My voice. They reined their violent horses on the mountains. My families, they are, I speak with them just like on the internet, but... Those fields, like ships, to castaways on islands. And mostly I don't speak with him too much because when I speak with him, I miss them. Visions of green to them who craved for water. She came on her own. She was in a room with 20 other people. They built by rivers and at night the water. water. She was scared most of the time to go to bed. Running past windows comforted their sorrow. In the airport where they have like 600 people in uh, one huge like hole for hours. Each in his little bed conceived of islands. Being far from cities. I think you'd be really happy to be here. And I always wonder about it. I mean, as a US citizen, would be alone without a child of parents. Yeah, I'm going to start to have this. Damascus, homes, from homes to Idlib, and from Idlib to Derzor, Raqqa, Aleppo, Dara'a, and I went to thousands of those stations in a lot of area, you know, like, I'm actually not politics man, you know, so I'm the guys who was just searching for fun, dancing, go out. Without this music, this time would have been much harder. It's an open uh, mountain stream. It's always about the consequences of this flying high for me. From a place of relief and release. We, we are in prison in Baribians and then from there we break the prison and then we run. My dad was very happy to move to Italy to move for my mom and then me and my sister. Then and we fled at the riverside and then we show ourselves in Lampadusa, you know? But there was always a sense of, uh, you know, maybe it's the sea, maybe it's being in constant motion on a bicycle, maybe it's the fresh air. I'm out of Syria, but Syria is not out of me, so Syria is still inside me. At the end, all of a sudden I'll have these flashes. You only voice out your problems. I mean, you wouldn't have wanted it in any other way. There's no solution for your problems. But there always still was this underlying thing that, oh, right, this is what I've been doing for the last five years. In this big city, far away from home. The next minute, they will not make any effort for you. The center of your life becomes a different place, and then... You can do it. Maybe you don't want to do it, but you can do it. I felt quite lonesome, and I had no place to stay. I had some friends. I think that Europe was... Everything was available here, you know? They made me key and said, you can come whenever you want. But it's not right. In a way, that's kind of what we're all looking for, right? The ability to sort of step back from our own life, at least temporarily. They are all human beings. They will understand. They will understand. They are all human beings. We could go back and to them. But dawn came back 
and they were still in cities. We didn't think about all the others who had to pay for this way of life. No marvelous creature rose up from the water. All these others who... There was still gold and silver in the mountains. Minerals who have to work in agriculture for little money. But hunger was a more immediate sorrow. So we didn't realize that. We didn't care. Although to moping villages and valleys... But you know, you live in a very different time. Some waving pilgrims were describing islands. The gods, they promised visit us from islands. A stalking, head up, lovely through our cities. Now is the time to leave your wretched valleys and sail with them across the lime green water, sitting at their white sides, forget your sorrow, the shadow cast across your lives by mountains. So many doubtful perished in the mountains climbing up crags to get a view of islands. So many, fearful, took with them their sorrow, which stayed them when they reached unhappy cities. And I'm so happy here in Berlin, in my new home, in my new life. So many, careless, dived and drowned in water. So many, wretched, would not leave their valleys. It is our sorrow. Shall it melt? Our water would gush, flush, green these mountains and these valleys. And we rebuild our cities, not dream of islands. And we rebuild our cities, not dream of islands. And we Rebuild our cities, not dream of islands. How can it be that you live like that and others live like that? The number could be called any day. And you now can all see it easily everywhere. Sometimes it just took a few days, sometimes it would take weeks. It's difficult to stand these contradictions and to live with these contradictions. Impossible is sometimes to understand. To stand all these contradictions is not easy it's at all. It's better to keep houses empty the question makes more money. how much space you're entitled to use in your life. Tent, there's tents now. It's very interesting. They go inside there, they get a little ribbon. How can we start again? Different it's colors, depending on where they're from and where they are in the process of registering. It's an open um, mountain stream. And we rebuild our cities. How can we start again? Cities. Not dream of islands. But you know, you live in a very different time. A Very Different Time by Phil Smith. Phil has been our featured artist this hour, and since remarkably he's only been producing radio stories for four years, this is hardly a retrospective. In fact, we're going to call it a prospective because this is just the beginning, and we can't wait to hear what he comes up with next. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. Isabel Vasquez is our production assistant. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. 
with so much to listen to and so little time, ReSound. All diamonds, no rough.